But on the other hand, I know that in order to live up to the requirements of tomorrow, I need to retool and I need to invest in new systems, new capabilities, because if I don't, I will fall behind, you know, in a couple of years from now versus my competition and more importantly, versus what my customers' expectations are. Welcome to Create New Futures, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful leaders to explore how you can create new futures for you and for your organization. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Mark Becker. Mark is the head of America's supply chain operations at HP Inc., and he is enabling and is responsible to deliver for the printing, the graphics, and the personal systems businesses, and thereby enable their goals by leading the end-to-end operational experiences of customer and channel orders for commercial and retail. I initially met Mark in a series of strategy workshops I led for the senior supply chain team at HP, and I found Mark to be a free thinker who is ready to challenge conventional approaches. He is a dynamic leader, passionate about pursuing continual improvement and delivering new innovative solutions. Mark, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Aviv. Great to be here. What uh, did I miss in your introduction there that it's important for people to know about you? Ah, that's a good question. What did you miss? Well, you described it well. Um, Maybe, um, you know, the fact that I'm a Dutch native, uh, born and raised in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and have had a fairly, you know, long career with HP. I'm reaching almost 25 years. And one of the things I you know, I'm really excited about and that which has helped me, you know, to do a bunch of stuff in the companies that I've had the opportunity to live and work uh, in three different regions, as we call it inside the company, right? I've raised, born and raised in Netherlands, uh, lived and worked in, in, in the Netherlands and Germany, but also had uh, a couple of years, um, the opportunity to work in Singapore, uh, leading uh, Asia Pacific and Japan uh, region for our print business in a supply chain environment before I uh, moved to the United States uh, to uh, enjoy my current role. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I, it, it has helped me shape my career, but also my leadership style to be working and living in different cultural environments. Give me an example of how um, were you shaped by this uh, global international experience, living in different countries, experiencing different cultures, working with people from different backgrounds? How were you shaped by that? Well, it shapes you in, in two different ways, I would say. It shapes you personally, right, from a personal experience point of view, um, packing up your bags uh, together with your family, kids, you know, wife, and so on. And moving into a completely different country, culture, language, um, you know, tests, you know, obviously, you know, your relationship, your resilience, your adaptability, 
uh, as a person um, and more from a, a professional perspective um, it's very interesting to 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 be able to le- lead organizations or teams of different cultural backgrounds and people grow up and get educated in in different ways and leading teams uh, in different you know countries and and, and regions uh, requires different approaches um, there are some that you know are like you described it maybe myself free thinker challenging you know status quo um, at, at any point in time and leading you know a group of people that way requires a certain style versus maybe more hierarchical oriented um, you know, styles where people expect, you know, the leader to tell them what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. My um, guess is, my guess is what you're describing there is more the Singapore experience. <laughs> I don't want to generalize. Okay. Um, I, I think, you know, there is, it's, it's not as, as, as it's, I don't think you can put it in boxes, but yep. yeah, different countries, uh, but even in, in a European environment, I would say, uh, you find these different approaches. Um, I think, you know, my, my, my origin, you know, Dutch people are known to be, you know, consensus driven and challenging and uh, even to the point of uh, publicly disagreeing with uh, 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 leadership, um, whereas maybe in some other country cultural context, you know, even in Western Europe, that is less done. Uh, so, right. So, yeah, uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, the, the, um, there the is more, there is more, there is more deference in, in Asian cultures. That, that's what I meant to, to, uh, right. Roll. Right. yep, for sure. Yep. Absolutely. But, but my experience, I'm curious how you will comment on, on this. So yes, it is critical to become culture, culturally aware and sensitive and especially if you want to get the best out of people to know how to communicate to them but then a layer deeper we are more the same than not anywhere you go in the world because human motivations are universal uh, even though we were shaped by the culture by the upbringing and if you like the the landscape of our mind is shaped by the the values we were imprinted I, I still find that more often than not, we are more the same wherever we go rather than so very different. I, yes, uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I'm an old school HP person, I would say. Um, I mentioned 25 years and, um, you know, grew up especially, you know, in, in terms of management uh, skills and leadership skills, you know, rising up the ranks, but also, you know, participating in leadership programs and so on. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I, Dave, Dave Packard, Bill Hewlett, you know, they're, they're famous, you know, people in a way, uh, you know, considered, you know, founding fathers of Silicon Valley. They've written a book, you know, which is called HP Way. Um, and if you read through it, there's, you know, interesting things in there you know, that have, that have shaped me as well. And one of those things is, and it goes back to you, the point you're making is, you know, I think it was Dave Packard who said, you know, I believe that everybody does what they do with the right intentions. Um, and it, it plays back to your point, right? In, in the end, we're all the same. We all want to be successful. Everybody wants to do the right thing. 
everybody wants to contribute um, and um, everybody wants to have, you know, a, a sense of purpose uh, and belonging. Um, and, um, you know, in the end, all of those things also come together, you know, in, in the work environment. And that's where I think we are indeed all the same. Um, and education might be different. Um, upbringing might be, or cultural environment might be different. But I think those are some foundational cornerstones that apply to everybody. That's right. The, the drive and the impulse to succeed, right. mm-hmm. the drive and the impulse to have meaning, to, to have purpose, the drive and the impulse to connect with others, to be seen, to be recognized, to be appreciated. Right. Those, those are universal human needs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Since we started there, and I'm, I'm going here with, with the flow of our conversations, and, and you made a comment, you mentioned the, the Dutch context. Give me just another insight there to this Dutch <laughs> ethos of uh, free debate. Everybody can question everybody. It's almost as though uh, arguing and debate is, is a is a national sport and you're supposed to, to argue. Am I describing that right or how would you restate what I'm saying and, and give me a bit of the cultural context and why uh, that is so appreciated in, in the Netherlands? Well, I think it, it goes back to, um, you know, the point I made on, you know, it's, it's considered a very consensus-driven um, environment, which means that in order for, you know, folks, you know, to make a decision uh, and in order for that decision to have, um, you know, to be, to be sustainable, if you want, um, it requires, you know, the majority of people to agree to it. Uh, and that's the consensus part. So what, what, what the style and, you know, the environment then drives is, you know, the debate in order to get everybody, everybody has the opportunity to raise their views, their opinions, to maybe argue to your point, but it's all to get to a point where we all commonly you know, feel that we have, you know, a solution that we can all feel good about and meaning that it is sustainable in the end and we can actually make that work. Right. Uh, I think that's one part. I think there's another part which, you know, we tend to 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 hear, you know, from external, but I think we know it as, as Dutch, you know, native people as well, is that we, we uh, are believed to be a very direct and direct in the sense that we do not hold back. We will, you know, voice our opinions uh, and our perspectives, um, not only, you know, when asked, but also, you know, and even more so when not asked, because we believe that it is important that um, everybody gets, you know, uh, the full insight of everybody in the room. So direct, uh, we speak up, but we also tell things the way they are without too much, you know, sugar coating, no lipstick on pigs, um, and no, um, you know, opportunity for misinterpretation, what we're trying to say. You know, I have a theory about this, which I've never read anywhere uh, else, but I've developed it because I do think that part of the geography and the the experience of of a nation becomes the context that shapes the the culture and the topography of mind. And the unique thing about the Netherlands is this situation where a a huge big chunk of, of the land has actually been conquered 
from the sea Correct. and develop this water canal system where each, uh, there is a, a situation where everybody is dependent on everybody else because it's enough for one person to mess up the, the part that they're responsible for uh, and they endanger everybody else. And I've always looked at that and I said, that is a formative experience for a nation and it will force everybody to have to express their opinion because in case of danger, we need to hear that point of view. And also you need not just consensus, you need committed consensus such that all and everybody, all people involved will rally to make it um, a reality to, to be successful in establishing that system. Uh, again, never read this research anywhere, but that's the theory that I've developed about the Dutch psyche and the Dutch mindset. So you can, you can confirm or disprove, but that's what I have in mind. No, and I think there is truth to it. Um, um, I think, you know, there's a couple of facts you're putting on the table, right? The reclaiming of land and the dependency on protecting ourselves from, you know, the water. The truth is if a dike or a dune breaks uh, anywhere in the country, the, there is a, a risk that 50% of the land will be flooded. Um, there is examples of, you know, 1952, where massive floods, you know, uh, occurred in the southern part uh, of the country that devastated, um, you know, the nation as well as killed a lot of people and so on, which, you know, then strengthens. I think there's examples in other parts of the world where those kind of events happen uh, and they shape, you know, the world, you know, they shape, you know, the environment in a certain way. So very true. I think it's a good analogy. Uh, I think there's other events, you know, that, have happened in history that probably contributed uh, as well. But yeah, it's a combination of those things for sure. Great. So I will I want to travel back to the Netherlands and, and to our bringing in a little bit, but uh, let me bring us to today, to your current experience and to your current role and ask you first, what do you enjoy most about your current role and, and the work you're doing? I would I would say there's two things that um, you know I would I would call out as you know me enjoying most. Um, and you described you know my role um, you know managing an end-to-end supply chain, delivering products and services to um, HP's customers, um, and those customers being you know retail uh, partners uh, such as Walmart or Best Buy or Staples. Uh, commercial distribution, large distribution companies, uh, but also commercial enterprise and public sector um, direct customers, large companies, uh, famous companies, Google, Amazon, uh, GE, uh, big banks, uh, a lot of the, the U.S. public sector, federal government uh, agencies uh, we work with. And one of the things I really enjoy uh, is to engage directly with those customers, uh, working with them, making them successful um, by, you know, providing our products and services and delivering those, you know, to their needs so that they can be successful in their, their own business, uh, which is very rewarding to see. Uh, and it goes back to what we talked about. That's, that's where I feel a big sense of purpose. How can I help? Uh, others and how can I support others be successful? Um, which ties it back to the second piece, which is 
um, how I feel about leading uh, a fairly large organization. Um, you know, there is uh, probably around about a thousand people that are part of my direct organization, which I lead, um, and, you know, some other you know, indirectly that I'm involved with. And it's extremely rewarding to engage with employees, with people that make things happen. Uh, I see myself as, you know, somebody here to enable, to provide, you know, direction, uh, the guiding light, uh, if you want. Uh, and it's, you know, very nice to engage with them to see how they can support, you know, the purpose I described of serving our customers but also how I can help them to grow their careers, how to develop people, how to see them, you know, be successful uh, and be engaged and motivated and inspired, you know, on how they can take, you know, some of those learnings forward into whatever their next journey uh, in, in their career might be. So, so let me ask you, yeah, great. So let me ask you about this first uh, element you highlight which is serving customer customers and this will link to a conversation you and I have had a couple of uh, years ago which is how <laughs> serving customers today is different to serving customers the way you used to serve customers 10 years ago 15 years ago because each and every person in in the US and and now globally too have the daily experience with um, being served by Amazon right and the and, and other companies that are perhaps able to to offer a similar kind of experience so how do you grapple with that kind of challenge that in the personal life of people uh, we have all learned to enjoy the the in, almost instant uh, delivery of uh, solutions through the the Amazon platform and, and the various prime services and you need to compete with that in the ecosystem and deliver to enable the success of those large customers? How do you embrace a challenge like that? Well, I think, you know, as a leader and a responsible member of leadership in a company like HP, it's always important, you know, to follow trends and to figure out, you know, how can we continue to be successful? Um, and, and like you said, there is a competitive environment out there and we want to be successful. We run a business, let there be no doubt, right? We want to be successful in what, selling products and services. And in order to do that, we need to be competitive. Customers need to like us. There needs to be a differentiation why they will choose HP over anybody else. And so what is really important is to keep a very close eye on what industry trends are, what customer expectations are, um, what others are doing, and, and where that is heading, uh, you know, reacting to it uh, when it's actually happening uh, is probably too late. Competition might be ahead of you and you lose, you know, the opportunity to serve those customers. So it's almost you know in my mind inevitable it's 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 a must do from a leadership perspective to continuously look look out into the future and listen carefully to customers but also going back again to the other part i enjoy working with employees and particularly uh, we talk a lot you know in in different contexts about 
new workforce, you know, new new employees entering the workforce, kids coming out of you know uh, universities, the millennial uh, conversation. I think we are getting to the next generation beyond the millennials that have expectations in how they do their work, but also they grow up with the availability of technology, the availability of the uh, the shareable economy, the availability of apps, the availability of two-hour, same-day delivery of things, uh, and they will be entering the workforce. They will be the employees of our customers in the future. Um, and uh, therefore, you know, we need to, it, it's, it's, it's a must to follow those trends to understand what will happen uh, and adapt to it in order to, to be relevant to survive and to be a sustainable brand and business. That's right. The Generation Z, the people that were born in 1996, uh, also known as digital natives. Right. They, <laughs> they want it now with full suite of options, and they can't necessarily understand why they cannot have it now. Uh, and that, that is a, a challenge to uh, a large company that... Uh, still carries in some way uh, traditional legacy systems. And, and right. uh, which brings me to the other element of your work, because if I understand this correctly, uh, you have your day job and then you have your second job, which is leading a large complex transformation. So firstly, is that correct? And, and how are these activities different or not? First of all, yes, your your question is correct. Um, as a company, uh, we are going through uh, what we call a significant digital transformation, uh, which means we are, you know, probably our second or third largest investment we are making in uh, in the company uh, is in in our internal tools and capabilities. And what I mean with tools is investments in ERP system planning systems and uh, some visibility systems or, you know, analytics and, and business uh, intelligence reporting uh, capabilities. Um, so large investments um, and um, the, the very transformational as we need to take out older legacy systems and replace those with newer, uh, which come with a significant amount of process re-engineering, a significant amount of retraining uh, of people, um, and a significant amount of risk uh, of disruption to our day-to-day -day operation. Um, this is how, uh, you know, the, those two jobs you described are probably the same in one way, but very different in another. Uh, and it's interesting as a leader to be kind of in a, in a split uh, in between those two things, running um, an end-to-end day-to-day operation whilst doing a transformative uh, activity. Um, what is important, you know, in running an operation, you know, end-to-end -end for our customers and to be successful for our customers, we want, you know, things to be predictable. We want them to be reliable. And we want, it, you know, our process to be meeting customer expectations. And, you know, every company builds up, you know, a system capability in a process environment where, you know, those are stable, right? You, you think about Lean Sigma, 
your your six six my you look at your processes you want them to be capable you want the process to be capable you want the process to be stable and from there you can look at how do i improve it further and any disruption is is dangerous right so on the one hand you know i live in a world where disruption in my systems and process environment you know is a scary thought because it can disrupt my ability to deliver quality to my customers but on the other hand i know that in order to live up to the requirements of tomorrow i need to retool and i need to invest in new systems new capabilities because if i don't i will fall behind you know in a couple of years from now versus my competition and more importantly versus what my customers expectations are Right. So they're two, you know, they conflict in a way, uh, but at the same time, it's, it's important to, to continuously work on those things in order to, again, like I said before, stay relevant, sustainable, um, and successful. So two questions there. One you, you already partly answered, but I'm still interested how you will answer, which is how was the promise or the story of such an investment, how was it rationalized? What was the, the business case anchored on in, in terms of making such a, a massive investment, in, at least at a, at a high level, so uh, we can internalize that process when a company uh, decides to, to make such an investment? That's question one. And then question two, what are some learnings from the journey of, of leading such a large enterprise end-to-end uh, transformation that, that you can distill at this point? So the, um, the business case, if you want, has you know, several elements to it, which you know, is normal, I would say, when you make uh, big investments um, like we did. I think in our case, first of all, you know, part of the business case we developed was around the enterprise risk and associated, not, not necessarily associated, but an element of enterprise risk and an element of cost, mm-hmm. ongoing cost to support the current architecture and the current infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, as systems get older, you have you know, the, the risk that they, at some point in time, they're not supportable anymore from a technology point of view. If you, need, you, know, you run on old hardware, you may not be able to find uh, replacement parts that easily. Uh, and more importantly, more from a code, a logic, the software piece, the applications that run on the hardware, uh, you risk losing expertise over time as people grow older uh, retire potentially or move on into different jobs you have you no longer have you know the right level of knowledge and expertise to continue to support you know an older uh, architecture in place so there's that element you know as part of the business case the cost and the risk associated with carrying old older architecture the other piece uh, of the business case is to look at you know newer uh, state-of-the-art technology at the hardware level, but more importantly, application software. So ERP system, uh, as an example, the latest um, SAP platforms, you know, that we are, are deploying 
you know, offers um, uh, better capabilities. Uh, it's in in-memory database, so the availability of data is is uh, easier to get to, faster, more dynamic, uh, real-time information. Um, the the processing of transactions, you know, will be faster. Uh, so it it brings a certain amount of efficiency, effectiveness. Uh, it 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 can reduce our cost uh, of uh, cost to serve, uh, as well as uh, allows us to provide um, a better uh, service to our customers when deployed correctly. And I think mm-hmm. there is a third element as part of our business case, which I, you know, talking to people in the industry and other industries, you know, happens a lot. Companies grow over many years, either organically, but also inorganically through acquisitions Mm -hmm. uh, around the world. And they end up with a myriad of systems Mm -hmm. uh, that all either all need to operate together, interact together, or, um, you know, one of the elements there is that they all need to be supported and there's no standardization of process uh, because of all these different systems that you carry. Uh, and that's a third element of a business case that if you can standardize and simplify around your, your processes on one architecture, um, that will help you from a cost and efficiency point of view, but it will also help you from a service delivery to a customer. Give you an example uh, in this uh, running three, uh, actually running 12 different ERP systems uh, around the world. If you have a global customer that expects you, a global customer like Amazon as a corporate customer of ours, expects us to act, behave, and perform the same anywhere in the world. If you have different systems uh, in different countries or sub-regions, that becomes very difficult to live up to that promise. Um, And so it's a third element of that business case. You can standardize and simplify, saves you money, uh, but you can also provide a better global service to, uh, to customers. Yes, uh, compelling and clear. I'm, I'm glad I asked you this question. It's uh, very important uh, to, to grasp uh, for anybody that, that's interested in, in why leading such a massive transformation. So, so how many months are you into this process and, and what are some of the key learnings that you are ready to articulate uh, along that journey? So um, we've been working on this uh, for a fair amount of time, um, and you know these things are you know long long journeys. This is not you know transformation activity that you complete in six months. We are um, you know a good a year and a half in uh, with some prep work, um, development work, and our. Uh, migration uh, and implementation, if you want, of the new system environment uh, started in uh, September of last year, September 2018, um, where we had a migration plan to roll over based on, um, you know, list of customers, um, you know, customer by customer almost, that we would roll over, you know, from the old system to the new system. We completed the final rollover uh, back in February of 2019. Um, so in a, um, I would say, roughly six-month time period, we, we did the deployment. And right now, three months, uh, roughly three months later, we are still in uh, what I would call the, um, 
the uh, the learning curve, the sustaining uh, environment, um, and optimizing of the solutions we implemented. And I think you you um, started asking the question, Aviv. So, what are some of the the bigger learnings? You know, of of running a massive transformation like this. I, I think there is multiple elements there to to consider. First of all, obviously, you need to have a good business case on why you want to do this. Right. You need to um, have a very solid um, uh, governance structure um, and organization model in place uh, between pure technical development, program project management, but also uh, working together across the organization um, with the operational people to make sure that you understand how you go from A to B, from where we are today to the new environment and what are some of the requirements, the capabilities, what are some of the risks, um, I think are extremely important. And you need to have a very solid governance in place. Sponsorship at the highest level of the company, Mm -hmm. cross-functional, very important. And then um, I think very important as you go through this journey uh, are all elements around uh, change management, um, which goes all the way from you need to train people on their new systems, on their new processes very, very well. You need to do very thorough testing before going live in a new environment, end-to-end testing. Um, in large programs like this, um, you know, discrete test testing, systems integration testing, all very important, but end-to-end testing across the multiple systems and, and processes is very important. Um, and I think one other very important aspect and learning as well that we have is that communication to stakeholders And those stakeholders could be people that are not necessarily involved in your transformation program, but are at the receiving end of it, Right, your sales force. Or even um, in in our case, we feel that it's important to inform customers of what we are doing. Because no matter how good you are, making a transformation uh, like we are uh, doing, you know, there will be disruptions. Uh, And they can be multiple. It can be systemic. It can be people needing learning curve. There will be implications. And if people know that you are going through this and you ask them up front for some patience and understanding, it goes much better. They are a lot more um, um, uh, acceptant in listening and understanding what's going on than when you do not tell them and all of a sudden there is a problem. So. Can you give me? Can you give an example of um, a critical decision or a or a crisis point or a setback and how you you learned uh, to to address it um, through this uh, uh, massive transformation? Right, um, you know, massive. So, so I think decision points um, are extremely important. When I mentioned governance, um, decision points, you know, milestones, but also making the right decision at the right time, for example, on your go-live. Um, mm-hmm. We faced the go-live based on customers. And you know, with that, obviously, a certain amount of capability. We had a very firm schedule 
um, which we wanted to live up to. Schedule was very important, you know, probably even more important than scope of what we were working on. But by the time that timeline comes in saying we will go live on Monday of next week, as an example, uh, it becomes, you know, and it has become a very important decision point. Are we ready? Does the system do what it needs to be, be doing? Does the process support it? Are our people uh, ready to take on this challenge and migrate over? Um, very important decision. And I can only encourage people that uh, are planning to go through this, um, make sure that you have the right people around the table uh, to make that decision that, that are knowledgeable and that know what is at risk. Uh, very important. And to, to give you an example of, um, you know, uh, what can go wrong, um, we've had situations where, A, we've had to postpone the decision to go live because we realized we were not ready. So uh, let me just pause you on there because even that is a comment about culture. There has to be a transparent and open and candid enough culture right. for somebody, you or anybody else, to call this out and say, we're not ready, we must uh, reschedule or, or, or change course. If you don't have that kind of open, transparent, trust-based culture, uh, great disasters are about to happen sooner or later. Right. Um, but it's more, it, there's, there's one element of it, which is, I think, even more important in that culture environment. It's you're, you're spot on in saying you need to have a culture where it is okay for one person around the table to say, we have a problem, we cannot proceed and feel comfortable to do that. What is even more important is for leadership around the table that needs to make that decision to um, you know, weigh, um, weigh in and weigh over you know, the consequences of the decision either way mm -hmm. and how that affects you know, individuals. Um, give you. Uh, let me try to illustrate that. Uh, what I mean with that, um, me as the operational owner um, in this uh, uh, scenario will want to protect my people, my operation, my customers. That's my job. That's my role. That's my primary accountability. Yes. So for me to speak up and say, guys, we're not ready, uh, is fairly easy. Um, but what I'm doing by saying so is I'm impacting the person who is in charge of the project, whose objective given by the corporation is to deliver a program with, within the scope, the schedule, the timeline, and the budget given to him. Right. So if I say we cannot proceed, we need to postpone, that has an implication for the person that, that carries those objectives and responsibilities. And if leadership does not accept you know, the trade-off one way or another, that creates a, a fair amount of tension in the system, right? So that is the other element of the culture that comes with that is that then you need to make the trade-off one way or another and accept the consequences and also provide you know, the the empowerment, the coaching, and and um, um, acceptance of certain people not being able to deliver upon the objectives you've given them. Beautiful. Thank so you. based on this experience, if you needed to do something like this again at some point in the future, what's one thing you're likely to do different? 
I think what what you know so there's elements in in you know how we experience this where I think we did um, the right things the way I described it. We postponed a couple of times. Uh, we made the right trade-offs. I think you know one big learning is um, you know that the the element where I said the communication uh, to stakeholders, communication to you know, external uh, of what we were about to do, the potential implications, the risk, the involvement, so the uh, a large element of management of change, uh, I think we could have done better, which we have learned. We're not done, by the way, with the program, right? We have mm-hmm. uh, other regions and, um, you know, where we need to go through the same exercise. It's a multi-year program uh, we're going through. But I think those are, you know, some of the learnings. Um, I think um, one personal learning for me is, you know, um, to to keep a balanced view between, you know, the, the corporate objectives of one, protecting customers, but also running a program like this is costing money and any delay, you know, is not helpful from a an overall objective of the program perspective. So making sure you continue to have the right balance Um, and in the conversation to be fact-based, factual, not opinion. Um, When, you know, you say we need to postpone because we are not ready. What does that mean, right? How do you describe not ready? What's your measurement of success of not ready? Um, Those are important learnings. You know, I think we, we learned probably can do better, but also additional advice I would give people that uh, want to go through an exercise like this. Be data-driven and factual. Yeah, absolutely. Let's trace to the beginning uh, of your journey, Mark. Uh, You talked about uh, you're born and raised in in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. What inspired you when you were growing up? I think, you know, what inspired me... It was, you know, a natural thing, I think, that, that led to, you know, some of the, the, the things that I still carry around with me. And it was, I was a young boy, um, you know, 13, 14 years old. And, you know, I'd figured out through getting pocket money, you know, from my parents that if you have some money, you know, you can do interesting things with that. You can become, you know, you know, a little bit more independent. And I, uh, you know, found myself, you know, around the corner, you know, there was a shop um, and it is shop in um, selling, you know, winter sports articles, skis, ski boots, you know, clothing, you know, all those, all those kind of things. And the owners, you know, I, I got to know and the owner said, Hey, you know, I have a job for you. How about you wash my car and I pay you for it. So, you know, I decided to do that. And within no time, you know, I realized that, you know, actually, if I do this, you know, well and fairly quickly, you know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, the, the wife of the owner said, hey, you know, you did a good job there. I have a car, too. Can you do that one, too? <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it turned out, you know, very interesting that within no time I was washing the cars of almost every employee of the shop. But, you know, with good quality and uh, within, you know, you know, reasonable time. And I thought, hey, this is interesting. I can make quite a bit of money um, doing this. And, and, it, and it went on from there. 
where, um, as you know, some of you may know, Dutch people, you know, we're famous about the water. You mentioned it. And we're yeah. also famous that when the water freezes over, um, you know, we all get excited because it gives us an opportunity to go ice skating. That's right. That's right. And, you know, and, you know, it's this famous story that lots of Dutch people pull their skates out when that happens. But those skates, you know, they're metal blades, as you know. Uh, and in order to be to skate, those blades need to be sharp. The angles yep. on those blades need to be sharp. So they need to be sharpened. And so this shop, you know, they set up, you know, this this um, service that, hey, come to us. We can sharpen those blades for you. It will cost you 15 bucks uh, to do that, and you will be as good as new. Uh, and they asked me, hey, can you do that? Um, uh, sure, let me give it a try. And so I got paid seven bucks a pair. And, uh, you know, winter hit and, um, you know, all of a sudden there was a lot of it. And I realized, wait, you know, the more I do, the, the more I set up my, my shop in my, you know, in the attic of uh, my parents' house, I set up my shop. I had my, my system. I had my, my sharpening stone and I had, you know, my whole process worked out so that I could, you know, basically process. The more pairs an hour I could process through, the more money I made. At what point did you employ your friends to work for you? <laughs> I didn't. I never got to that point. Okay. Um, because I got greedy as well. That you know, as hey, this is interesting. If I put in a few more hours, you know, I can do even more, and I make more money. So, and it's to, just to illustrate, you know, those those are, it, is it inspiration? Is it something you know that I learned from that? Uh, it goes back to my 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 desire to to look at you know how do i streamline a process how do i you know make it efficient how do i you know get better at you know at what i do every day for an even better outcome so these are very formative experiences and in what you're saying there i imagine this is an early uh example an early experience of you beginning to discover right uh, what what you're good at and and uh, in in what way can you excel? Correct. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, you know, as I uh, obviously, you know, I was still in school at that time, but it became you know something which was very interesting because um, by doing so, I I was able to make you know a fair amount of money, and you know, amongst my friends and 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 so on, I yeah, I you know it. I, I I I had means, you know, compared to others, and that was kind of in, in interesting and inspiring. And saying, "Wow, I, you know, if you and a learning, I guess, right? If you work hard, if you put in the work, um, and you do it well, you know, you can do well for yourself." Absolutely. So, what is the arc then from that time and from you graduating from school to? Are you beginning to get a sense of, well, perhaps arriving directly to HP? Or g give me that uh, bridging phase until you find yourself and how you find yourself inside the career trajectory that, that led to what you do today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting um, because I took a few detours, you know, and graduated from school. Like you said, my, my aspiration and my goal back in the day was to become um, – and I, I I did have this desire to be in management. I I was seeing myself, 
uh, as a as a manager, uh, but in a completely different industry. I was fascinated by uh, hotel mm. hotel management, um, big you know not necessarily tourist resorts, but more you know uh, big city. Yep hotels where businessmen you know go like ourselves you know we're we're used to that kind of stuff um and be a manager you know in that so that was you know where i wanted to go and after graduating from school um you know targeted to that kind of career i uh, i ended up working in uh, in a hotel in amsterdam uh, ended up in their um uh, financial department finance department in the accounting uh, department working for the controller um, and my job, my, my first job was to do uh, all of the revenue accounting, um, you know, for, for the hotel, uh, which basically is a process where um, you, you take all the revenue uh, incurred, you know, the day before. There's a nightly process, you know, to get all of that stuff that needs to be booked into the books and so on. Um, and uh, that was my job uh, working there. And um, similar to what I described with, you know, washing cars and, you know, sharpening ice skates. Um, I, I very quickly developed, you know, a, a process around, you know, how do I make sure that I get all these bookings and all this stuff reconciled um, within, you know, the shortest amount of time? Uh, because then I have my hands free to do something else. Uh, and that worked within no time. No, the, the way the job was designed was you do this, um, and it's your day job. You take your nine to five, you do all your revenue accounting and reconciling, et cetera, from nine o'clock in the morning and you finish it at five. Um, within a couple of months, I was done at lunchtime and was basically sitting there and told my boss, the financial control, and said, well, I, you need to ask me to do something else because I've got time on my hands. Uh, which is, you know, she then said, well, you seem to be very nifty and crafty with our systems. So why don't you start acting as our systems manager, a little bit of an IT environment? Um, and I did that in addition to my my other job. And that is how ultimately I developed, you know, a bit of a technical skill, um, took, you know, uh, left the hotel, got into a software company. Well, let me, just, let me just hold you to that story because there are three keys in, in that. Number one, this job, I imagine, gave you complete visibility to the mechanics of a business, the financial side right. of a business, and, and really be exposed to, to that, which is a very critical foundation. So understanding the, the workings of a business. Number two, which you uh, already brought from the, the earlier experience with cars and, and with uh, making those equipments better ready for ski, was finding any opportunity you can improve make it more efficient, make it more effective. But then number three, making yourself available for next new opportunities. These are right there. There is a formula for career shaping uh, steps uh, in that early experience. Beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, so from there, I, I, you know, as I, and, and this is, I think it's a, it's a leadership or, you know, development, if you want, like you said, you know, how do you grow your career? Um, what happened from there as I, as I got involved in 
call it, you know, IT management, systems management, I, I had to engage with the company that provided the software uh, the hotel was running on. Um, and, you know, from time to time, you know, problems occurred. I had to reach out to them, get their support. Um, and, um, you know, about probably a year in, that company actually called and said, hey, uh, we like, you know, the knowledge you're building up. We like the way you approach things. Uh, why don't you come and work for us? Mm. Uh, so it offered, you know, that, that trajectory offered me a career opportunity into a different industry, right? A software industry, uh, still in hotel management where I, where I thought I wanted to be. Um, and uh, that company offered me roughly four years of, uh, great opportunities of being the one training new users on their system, uh, doing implementation of systems in hotels across Europe, Middle East, Africa. It took me to several countries in Africa, including Kenya, Mozambique, uh, Zimbabwe, South Africa. Uh, it took me to Moscow, to Prague, um, uh, and we're talking, you know, this is uh, early 90s, mid 90s. Um, fascinating time to travel around these countries, yeah. Fascinating time to travel around these countries. Um, and a little anecdote, you know, one day I was in uh, in Mozambique um, helping a hotel automation and I was working with the guys, you know, uh, managing the night shift. Um, and uh, at some point I you know, decided to go for a walk outside the hotel. And um, the, um, you know, I, I was walking outside and I thought I heard, you know, windows slamming and I went back into the night manager and said, hey, you know, there's a, there's a door or a window open somewhere and the wind seems to be blowing and, you know, slamming the door open, closed and so on. And he said, no, you're wrong. I said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what you're hearing is gunfire. What you're hearing is the rebels, you know, shooting, you know, not so far down the street, which is, you know, that builds character as well when you go through those kind of experience, right? That you go, Indeed. Oh God, I'm in a world which is very different, not so protected from where I come from. Yes. Um, so wonderful experience. And yeah, uh, same thing. The software was running on HP equipment, funny enough. And so in order to make that work, I had to engage with HP from time to time. Um, you know, during my installations and uh, system support I provided. And the same thing happened one day to the next. HP said, hey, why don't you come and work for us? Right. So right there is, is, um, is the essence of career progression and, and career evolution, which is you engage an opportunity to its fullest, you build relationships, right. uh, you build the transferable skills, the people that, that come to experience how you serve your clients say, why won't you come work for us? So one opportunity leads to the next one. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you step back and look with everything you've experienced, what would you say today makes for a great operational leader? Um, I think... Um Describing an operational leader, I think, you know, in a way, I would say that there's a lot of jobs out there and careers out there that have, you know, multiple elements of an operational leader in it. Uh, in my case, um, I think, you know, there is multiple 
characteristics or important elements that that I see. First of all, um, I, I talked about the fact of being customer focused. Um, mm-hmm. In the end, you know, without customers, you know, a, a business does not exist. Um, so it's extremely important to be customer focused uh, in my mind. Um, I think an operational leader needs to understand how um, his end-to-end process works. Um, an operational leader needs to be capable of managing uh, that process, improving it. So having, uh, we, we talked about it, data-driven, fact-based um, metrics need to be there to tell you whether you are successful achieving your um, uh, objectives, yes or no, that serve your customers. And uh, so as a second uh, element, third element is uh, an operational leader needs to be a leader, um, needs to be able to lead people. Uh, in the end, it's the people that make things work. And if you're not capable and effective as a leader in motivating, developing, engaging your employees to do what they need to do day in, day out with enthusiasm and excitement and skill uh, and drive, you cannot be successful. Um, and I think the, the one element we briefly talked about earlier on is an operational leader cannot sit still and just look at his day, current day operation. An operational leader needs to be strategic, needs to think about the future, needs to think about what comes next. How do I evolve? How do I evolve my operation? How do I evolve my organization? How do I evolve myself? That's beautiful. So if I put this in four quadrants, uh, the first quadrant is customer, customer focused. The second is, is end-to-end process. Understand the mechanics of a business so you can truly uh, understand uh, end-to-end how it works. Uh, be a people leader. Lead your people. And the fourth quadrant, uh, aptitude for change and uh, being curious and, and continuing to evolve as a, as a human being and, and as a professional and, and as a leader. Uh, right there is, is a good framework Absolutely. Uh, for somebody that wants to uh, embrace uh, continual development of, of their leadership. With all that you know today, Mark, what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? I would say, on the one hand, you know, be confident. You have, you know, you have learned, you have, you know, developed skills that are right on. And the reason I'm saying that is that I think when I was 25, I did not realize the power of what I described earlier of the learnings of starting washing cars and Mm. skates and, you know, those things. I did not realize Mm. what I had gone through as an individual. Um, that's, that's something I guess that you realize maybe as you go through your career and you look back and you go, wow, yeah, that is some, that, that actually shaped me. Mm -hmm. But when you're 25, I think you're too young to realize that. Um, so I, I would tell my 25 year old, you know, Hey, you know, you, you, you've got some skills developed already. Trust your instinct, um, I think is, is really important. The other one, I continue um, on, you know, the elements I just talked about, be data-driven, fact-based, leave emotions at home as much as you can, 
when it comes to uh, business environment um, emotions you know in human interactions are good but when you get faced with difficult decisions trade-offs we talked about earlier fact-based data-driven always wins over any kind of opinion or emotion um, and you know the other thing I would say is you know always remember this is not about you as an individual this is about the contribution you can make to the success of a business your customers society and so on right great if you were to lose mark all that you know and keep only two ideas or two capabilities or two practices what would you keep i would keep the care for what I can do for others, how can I support and help others? And I would keep this principle of get better every day. Hmm. How do I can get, how can I get better every day in whatever it is I do, I aspire and so on. If you serve the people around you and if you learn and evolve every day, you will never be found without, you will never find yourself in a place that um, you cannot thrive in. That's, right. that's powerful. Uh, this, is, uh, this was rich uh, exploration with you today, Mark. Uh, as we bring this to, to lending, what parting wisdom over and above the much you have already said uh, do you want to offer to people listening to create new futures? I think I, I, the last thing I, or in parting, I would say, you know, the last piece we talked about, um, what would I tell my, my 25 year old self, um, uh, is what I would, would leave, you know, people with that, you know, have, you know, aspirations, ambitions, and want to grow as, as human beings want to grow in their career, trust your instinct, um, Make it about, you know, the purpose, you know, you are serving and not about yourself. Um, and, um, you know, always, always go back to, you know, the facts, the data, uh, because that, you know, is what counts in the end. And it will take, it will make things easier to navigate through tough times. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for the opportunity. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey, and it's your time to take action, to create your new future. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First, discover how you can improve what you manage. Mark progressed in his career by first learning deeply the business he stepped into, and then by finding opportunities to improve the systems and processes that run his operations. What opportunities do you have to learn deeply and then improve results? Second, reflect on the four elements of operational leadership. Mark proposed the following four quadrants. Quadrant one, the customer. What are the customer's needs and desire and how you will deliver differential value? Quadrant two, the end-to-end -end process of your business. How can you elevate the process performance to create an even higher impact and deliver results that will surprise the stakeholders and customers and people you serve? 
Quadrant three, leading your people. How will you engage your teams to co-create with you a future that will express their highest aspirations and capabilities? And quadrant four, leading yourself, continuing to evolve and grow as a person and as a professional. What are your next growth frontiers and how will you apply yourself to these opportunities? Finally, third, Mark offered that the two most essential elements you can always land on and then create opportunities for yourself and for others are caring and learning. Whether you face a great set of challenges and adversity, or you're thriving and perhaps even on top of the world, learning and caring will always open new doors and produce the next opportunities. This is a universal truth we can all apply ourselves to. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.